Father God, we thank you for the beauty of the day, the privilege of being here, the joy that we feel in you and in each other, the fellowship that we share in Christ, and the hope that is ours in you. Father, when we're done, may we be able to say even more powerfully and more personally than we could when we started, it is well with my soul. And may other people see the peace of us in a way that they would want to know. May they be attracted to the light of Jesus in us as we learn even more effectively how to be the light of the world for them. May others next week see you in us because we see you here today. So speak to us from your word. Draw us into your presence. Father, anoint and bless this time as we study your scripture together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the many reasons Janet and I love being out here so much is we love the sense of getting away. You know, the sense of leaving it behind, whatever it is, getting off of I-20 and feeling the kind of the weight of the world go away. And we're apparently not the only people that feel this way. Wall Street Journal had an interesting article this week about some rather um, unusual vacation opportunities that are available to us these days. This, for instance, is known as the Summit Prairie. It is in Oregon. It's not even open in August because of the threat of uh, wildfires. It has no Wi-Fi. It has no cellular service. It has no internet service. The only restroom facilities are an outhouse down four flights of stairs. And it has 300 people on the waiting list. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd want to be one of those, but... Uh, Nonetheless, here's another option the journal profiled. This is in the Denali National Park in, uh, in uh, Alaska. No Wi-Fi, no internet, no cellular, no communication with the outside world whatsoever, as you might imagine. And the cost per night is $3,150 per night. I don't mind my HOA dues here at the harbor nearly as much as I might have otherwise. Here's a less sophisticated option. They're building these in England. This is known as a kudva. I have no idea why. It is, as you see, a tent on stilts. It has no technology of any kind. It has no um, outhouse, no service of any kind. Here's what it looks like on the inside. And they're building them like crazy. People looking for something to get away, some way to find a sense of what it is they're somehow not finding in their souls today. This is Martin E.P. Seligman. He is a psychology professor, University of Pennsylvania. He's also a best-selling author on the subject of happiness. His best-selling book on the subject, entitled Authentic Happiness, I read a few years ago and would highly recommend to you. He says that we have three ways of orienting ourselves to our work and to our lives. We have three options. One of them, of course, is a job, something we do to make a living, Maybe not a life, but a living. And then, of course, there's a career which entails a higher, deeper investment in your job. But according to Dr. Seligman, the secret to authentic happiness is finding a calling. It's finding your purpose. It's finding a passion that makes your life worthwhile. So that even if you are getting away to a Kudva or to the Denali National Park when you come back, you know why you're coming back. You know what you're coming back for. You know what you're here for. So what does Jesus think you're calling the key to authentic happiness should be? Well, we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount these days. We've walked through the Beatitudes. Now we're looking at some of the metaphors that follow those. And here's our passage for today. Jesus speaking to his followers says, 
You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and he gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So three keys to authentic happiness, according to this passage. First, know who Jesus says you are. When Jesus says you are the light of the world, the you there in the Greek is second person plural. It's every one of us. It's not just Peter, Andrew, James, or John. It's in the Bible for our sake. It's for you. When he says you are, he means right now, present tense. You will be this tomorrow. You were this yesterday. You are the only light of the world, says Jesus. Now, you read that and you think, well, I've heard that before. No big deal. That is actually one of the greatest compliments Scripture could ever pay you. And the reason is because Jesus says he is the light of the world. And now he says you are who he is to a dark world. Jesus says in John 8, I, and it's emphatic in the Greek, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 9, 5, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now that he is no longer physically present, and you are, now your job, my job, is to be the mirror of his light. It is to be the reflection of his light in a culture that so desperately needs what he alone can provide. This is what John the Baptist said of himself. Scripture speaks of him saying, there came a man who was sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light, became as a witness to the light. Scripture says, you are all sons of the light. There's no clergy laity distinction in the Bible. There's no Sunday, Monday, no secular, spiritual, religion, real world, all that stuff. Jesus says of you, when he looks at you, when he identifies your passion, when he identifies your mission, this is it. Your job is to reflect his light to a dark world. That's what Jesus says. He says, that's who you are. Okay? Why does that matter? Why is that such a big deal? Why should that give you a sense of purpose and passion and direction and future that nothing else can? Why is that so important? Well, here's what Scripture says about the world you and I are going back to. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Scripture says of those that do not know Christ, they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's like he was reading the newspaper, right? And the source of all of that is the enemy himself, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In the face of all of that, there's only one source of light. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, the definite article is intentional. The light of the world isn't found in politics. It's not found in government. It's not found in entertainment. It's not found in business. It's not found in means and materialism and commercialism and consumerism and all of that. Jesus doesn't say this to the rabbis. He doesn't say this to the intelligentsia. He doesn't say this to the academics. He doesn't say this to the Romans. He says this to you. You're it. You're nothing else. 
That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Acts 4.12 says salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. According to Jesus, if any light's going to come in the dark world, it has to come from us. Now, I understand how egotistical that sounds. I get that. I get how the world, if they were hearing this right now, would be thinking, so you Christians think you alone, you solely have the cure for cancer, as it were. You alone have figured out age. You alone have, have solved heart disease. You alone have it figured out, and nobody else does. Not the Buddhists or the Hindus or the Muslims or the Mormons, not the secularists, nobody but you. You hear how egotistical that sounds, right? Well, it's not about us. All we're doing is reflecting. It's not about us. We're beggars helping beggars find bread. We're lost people who have been given a map. Somebody put GPS on our phone. It's not about us. And the one thing Jesus offers that, with all due respect, Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims don't offer is the ability to have your sins forgiven and your broken relationship with God healed and a personal relationship with a personal God. They don't even pretend to offer that. They don't even conceive of that. That's something Jesus uniquely died and rose to give. It really is like you're in Carlsbad Caverns and all the lights go out and it's pitch black and you have the only flashlight that works. Not your fault. Not because you are better than anybody else. Not because you earned it or deserved it or me. It's just because you received a gift. When I was in high school, I was the president of our Christian student union. And the reason I was that, lest you be impressed, there were, there were four of us, okay? And lest you be impressed that I was the one of the four that became the president, we met in the upstairs balcony of the high school auditorium at Sharpstown High School in Houston, Texas. And we were waiting around for the custodians to open the door, and they were late. And so messing around, I stuck my house key in the lock, and it worked. That should scare somebody that my house key opened the doors to the balcony of the auditorium at the high school, but it did. And that made me the anointed president of the Christian Student Union because my house key opened the door to, I'm, I kid, I'm not making this up. You can't make this stuff up, right? And so as a result, I was asked to speak at club day when, you know, all the clubs tell all the students about their clubs and want people to come join. So I'm the president of the Christian Student Union, so I'm up talking about the Christian Student Union and hoping other people will join us as I open the door with my house key, you know? And so I told a story. I don't know where I heard this story, but I told this story because it somehow made sense to me, and it comes back to me now as, as still making sense. So you're in Carlsbad, and there's this terrible cave-in, and all the lights are broken, and everything is shut off, and you're in pitch black. And people are trying to dig out over here, and people are yelling for help over here, and people are pounding on the walls over here. And way off in the distance, you happen to see a tiny pinprick of light. And you make your way over to it, and you find that it's an opening big enough to get out. And you go back and you tell the other people in the cave that you have found the way out of the cave, but they won't believe you. They keep pounding on the wall, or digging in the dirt, or yelling for help. And you get out and they don't. It doesn't make you any better than anybody else. You just trusted the light that was there for them all. That's, I think, it. And I think that's the privilege that is ours. Jesus says, moving to the last point, in telling us how to shine for God, Jesus says, 
a town, a city, on a hill cannot be hidden. When he's speaking these words, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's at a place, what we call the Hill of Beatitudes. I go there every time we take people to Israel. It's a privilege just to be in the general area of all this. And I always point out the fact that where Jesus is preaching, right over his right shoulder, right up the hill over there. I point it out and they can see it. If we're at some places where we go at the church, a hill of Beatitudes, there aren't, there's a structure and you can't see it, but if you're out in the field, you can. So we're out and we look over that way, and what we see right up there is the city of Sophit, or Slot, as they say in Hebrew. And it's been there for more than 2,000 years. And it's a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. In the daytime, because of the kind of whitewashed sort of uh, limestone that they use, it reflects the sun, and you can see it a great way off. At night, it's the lights of the town that you can see from everywhere. We always stay in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, and you can look up, and there's Sfat. There's Sophit right up there. A city on a hill cannot be hid, Jesus says. Then he changes the metaphor. Neither do men, people, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Well, here's the kind of lamp he's talking about. We find these all over Israel, even today. It's a tiny thing you can put several in one hand. You put oil in the big hole in the middle. You light the wick in what looks like the spout there. It's real hard to get lit. And so when you want to shield that light, you don't blow it out and then try to restart it. You put it under a basket, or what the text calls a bowl, and air can get to it so it can breathe and it can stay lit, and yet you can shield the light so you can go to sleep at night. That's how you turn off the lights, is you put a basket over the lamp. Well, Jesus says, no one lights a lamp for the purpose of shielding it. You wouldn't go to all that trouble just so you could hide it. Instead, you put it on its stand. What Jesus is referring to is an outcropping, a kind of a, a shelf that was built in to the uh, one room, uh, very small, very simple homes that most of them lived in. Most of them were made out of a kind of adobe, and there's a very simple kind of a shelf. And you put the lamp there, and that tiny oil lamp can give light to everyone in the house, Jesus says. In the exact same way, let your light so shine before men. He doesn't say light the light. He did that. Let your light. Let the light that's already in you, let the Jesus who already lives in you, let the Holy Spirit who already indwells you, let the light that is in you so shine before others that they'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, Jesus tells us. So how do we do that? Some practical suggestions from Scripture. First of all, be godly. Look at this passage in Romans 13. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Am I godly enough for people to see God in me? Is there something that's shielding the light from them? Is there some way that my mirror, to, sh to change analogies, is smudged or dirty or broken? are misaligned with the source. Would you ask God to help you be godly that people might see His light in you? Care about hurting people. Isaiah 58. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will become like the noonday. Would you ask God to put a hurting person on your heart? Someone who needs the light of Jesus in you. Look at this passage from 1 John 2. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, nothing in him to make him stumble. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. Is there a brother with whom you're at odds today? Is there someone you need to forgive? Someone whose forgiveness you need to seek, that your light might shine. And then last, this is Philippians 2. Become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Would you ask God to give you the courage and the commitment to share his love with somebody this week? Would you do that? Would you choose to be godly? Ask God to help you be godly. Ask God to show you where in your life you're, you're blocking the light. God, how can I be more godly? God, who's a hurting person I can care about? Who's a brother I need to be right with? Who's someone who needs your word in me? Those are the questions. Jesus says if you'll do that, if you'll choose to let your light shine like that, people will see your good deeds and they will glorify your Father in heaven. The darker the room, the more obvious the light, right? If we were having this conversation at midnight and all the lights were off and I pulled out my iPhone and I hit the flashlight, you'd all see it. You wouldn't see it right now. I could turn it on right now and hardly be noticeable. But the darker the room, the more obvious the light. So I'll close with this. This is John and Charles Gaddy. They were the first Presbyterian missionaries ever sent out by the nation of Canada. They were sent to Polynesia in the South Pacific. But it did not go well. The first several years on the particular island where they were assigned, they found horrific, just horrific immorality on the island, terrific abuse. When the natives died, the others ate their bodies and then murdered their wives. And these missionaries would go into the jungle and they'd be pelted with stones and clubs. Very few hearing, responding to the gospel. After a few years, things began to change. In 1851, one of the tribal chiefs came to faith in Christ. Then others came to Christ. And then the members of their tribes followed their example. And the churches that he built began crowding to overflow. And lives began to change and families began to change. And these churches that he established on this island began establishing churches in other islands. And natives became missionaries. And John and Charlotte stayed there until 1872 when he died. Sometime later, a plaque was put behind the pulpit where he preached in the church that he established. And it said these words. When he landed in 1848, there were no Christians here. When he left in 1872... There were no heathen. Let's pray. God may not be calling you to Polynesia, but where you live is your kingdom assignment. And wherever you live, somebody needs the light of the world. Somebody's in darkness. Somebody needs you to be so godly that others see God in you. Somebody's hurting and needs you to care about their pain. Some relationship in your life isn't what it needs to be. Somebody needs to hear the gospel. And Jesus invited you to chapel today so you could worship him, so you could sing it as well with my soul, and then so you could 
live in such a way that someone next week could sing, it is well with my soul. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Would you say yes to him right now? Would you agree to be who God says you are? Would you agree that your calling, your key to authentic happiness, is in being who Jesus says you are? Father, I pray that because we were here today, I and we will be more effectively your light this week than we would have been otherwise. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you bring these words back to our minds and our hearts this week. When we're tempted to be less than godly, when we're tempted to pass someone who's hurting, when we're tempted to hurt rather than help, and to be silent, then we should speak up. May your light be reflected in ours. That men might see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. I pray for me and us in Jesus' name.